bad news, good news. Bad news. Shouldn't it be said of us that we don't cancel children's classes? We make sacrifices to get the gospel to the next generation, right? Okay. Let's deal with that today before you leave. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It's our responsibility if we can step up for it, okay? Let's let it be said that we do not cancel children's classes. We make sacrifices to get the gospel to the next generation. Another great opportunity to sacrifice is tonight we'll be praying for our children's ministries at 6 o'clock. You should come. You have nothing better to do. Trust me. 6 o'clock tonight. In this room and then in every classroom on the campus, we'll be praying for our kids tonight So uh, and, their, and their teachers. So uh, come and invest in that tonight at 6 o'clock. The good news is, uh, in September, I let you know we had a gap in our funding to care for those in financial need in our community. People need help with electric bills and groceries and stuff like that. Um, okay, $6,000 have come in. We're good, okay? We are good on helping people with their power bills for the next, the next bit. So uh, those of you who are so generous, um, I'm sure God is very pleased with that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, we are going to today, as you can see on the screen, um, there is life after Deuteronomy. Uh, we are, and there are, there are sermons after Deuteronomy. We're going to continue with a short series that really revolves around that theme of of the year for us, a loving obedience to a loving God. So the next three weeks, we will be specifically um, addressing that theme, except I just lost all power to advance a slide. So if someone knows how to restore said power, that would be really helpful, because it ain't, it ain't happening. Maybe this would be a really good greet your neighbor time. While we, uh, we restore that power. Try again. Magic. Okay, tell, you, tell your neighbor goodbye. We have power back. <laughs> You'll talk to him after the service. What I'd like to do with you this morning is... Uh, Earlier this summer, I had a tremendous privilege. I had a chance to go to our Creed camp and share a message with our, uh, with our youth uh, up in the West Virginia mountains. Tremendous honor to do that. And I'm, I'm going to share that message with you this morning. Um, so you will find this morning that many of the messages are targeted at teens. I trust that there's plenty of shrapnel to apply to you. Um, if you are a Creedite, and you heard this message before, I trust that this will be a great reminder to you of what God was saying to you this summer. And that you will use this time to pray for the church as they hear the same message that you heard uh, this summer. So, this morning, I'm going to share with you a secret. It is just three words. You can write it down if you want, but it's just three words. Okay? This is the secret. Ready? God loves you. God loves you. I, I know you're thinking, that's no secret. I already knew that. It's on bumper stickers and billboards and t-shirts and that crazy guy with his face painted holding up the sign in the end zone that has John 3.16 on it. God so loved the world. I, I already know that. That's no secret. I should clarify, when I say secret, I don't mean something you don't know. I don't mean some secret ingredient or a secret handshake, or some juicy unknown fact about Justin Bieber. When I say secret, I mean key. I mean the key. 
past summer, my 12-year-old son was playing baseball. Um, he's a very erratic player at the plate. It could be, it could be one at bat. Could he could crush that thing and it was out of the park. And the next, the next at bat was this giant, you know, just not even close to making contact. Well, we figured out the secret to hitting the ball is seeing the ball. They'll tell you when you when you bat, keep your head on the ball. Don't pull your head. Keep your head on the ball. Watch the ball hit the bat. The, the secret to hitting the ball is seeing the ball. Now that's not that's not some new revolutionary idea that Josh Hamilton does not know. It's a key that Josh Hamilton definitely knows. It's not top secret information, but it is information that is key if you want to hit the ball. So the idea that God loves you, that you are loved by God, is not some little known new idea, it's not some hot new theological teaching, but it is the key to the Christian life, really, to all of life. To the extent that you understand and grasp and believe and abide in the truth that God loves you, that changes everything. It really does. To grasp what it means to be the beloved of God Changes everything. And I love the story. It's one of my favorite stories that John Ortberg tells that helps us see this. I'd like to share it with you again. It's the story of Pandy. Pandy the ragdoll. He says her name was Pandy. She had lost a good deal of her hair and one of her arms was missing. And generally speaking, she had the stuffing knocked out of her. She was my sister Barbie's favorite doll. She hadn't always looked like this. She had been a personally selected Christmas gift by a cherished aunt who had traveled to a great department store in faraway Chicago to find her. Her face and her hands were made of some kind of rubber or plastic so that they looked real, but her body was stuffed with rags to feel soft and squeezable like a real baby. When my aunt looked in the display window at Marshall Fields and found Pandy, she knew she had found something very good. And when Pandy was young and a looker, Barbie loved her. She loved her with a love that was too strong for Pandy's own good. When Barbie went to bed at night, Pandy lay next to her. When Barbie had lunch, Pandy ate beside her at the table. When Barbie could get away with it, Pandy took a bath with her. Barbie's love for that doll was, from Pandy's point of view, pretty near a fatal attraction, he says. By the time I knew Pandy, she was not a particularly attractive doll anymore. In fact, to tell the truth, she was a mess. She was no longer a very valuable doll. I'm not sure we could have given her away. But for reasons no one could ever quite figure out in the way kids sometimes do, my sister Barbie loved that little rag doll still. She loved her as strongly in the days of Pandy's raggedness as she ever had in the days of her great beauty. Other dolls came and went. Pandy was family. Love Barbie, love her rag doll. It was a package deal, he says. Once we took a vacation from our home in Rockford, Illinois, to Canada. We had returned almost all the way home when we realized at the Illinois border that Pandy had not come back with us. She had remained behind at the hotel in Canada. No other option was thinkable. My father turned the car around and drove from Illinois all the way back to Canada. We were a devoted family. Not a particularly bright family, perhaps, (laughs) but devoted, he says. We rushed into the hotel and checked with the desk clerk in the lobby. No pandy. We ran back up to our room. No pandy. We ran downstairs and found the laundry room. Pandy was there wrapped up in the sheets, about to be washed to death. Because the measure of my sister's love for that doll was was that she would travel all the way to a distant country to save her. 
the years passed, and my sister grew up, and she outgrew Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Andy, <laughs> who, he says, oddly enough, was even less attractive than the doll. Pandy had not been much of a bargain for a long while, and by now the only logical thing left to do was to toss her out. But this, he says, my mother could not bring herself to do. She held Pandy one last time, wrapped her with exquisite care in some tissue, placed her in a box, and stored her in the attic for 20 years. When I was growing up, he says, I had all kinds of casual playthings and stuffed animals. My mother didn't save any of them, but she saved Pandy. Want to guess why? It was the nature of my sister's love for Pandy that made her so valuable. Barbie loved that doll with the kind of love that made the doll precious to anyone who loved Barbie. All those tears and hugs and secrets got mixed in with the rags somehow. If you loved Barbie, you just naturally loved Pandy too. Many years passed. Many more years passed. He says, my sister got married, not to Andy, and moved far away. She had three children, the last of whom was a little girl named Courtney, who soon reached the age where she wanted a doll. No other option was thinkable. Barbie went back to Rockford, back to the attic, and dragged out the box. By this time, though, he says, Pandy was more rag than doll. So my sister... My sister took her to a doll hospital in California. He says there really is such a place. And had her go through reconstructive surgery. Pandy was given a facelift or liposuction or whatever it is that they do for dolls. Until after 30 years, Pandy became once again as beautiful on the outside as she had always been in the eyes of the one who loved her. I'm not sure she looked any better to Barbie. But now it was possible for others to view what Barbie had always seen in her. When Pandy was young, Barbie loved her. She celebrated her beauty. When Pandy was old and ragged, Barbie still loved her. Now she did not simply love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful. She loved her with a kind of love that made Pandy beautiful. Then he says, very wisely, he steps out of the story and he says, there are two truths about human beings that matter deeply. He says, number one, we are all rag dolls. Flawed and wounded, broken and bent, like a splash of ink in a glass of water, this raggedness permeates our whole being. Our words and thoughts are never free of it. We are rag dolls, all right, he says. Number two, but we are God's rag dolls. He knows all about our raggedness, and he loves us anyhow. Our raggedness is no longer the most important thing about us. There is such a love, he says, a love that creates value in what is love. There is a love that turns ragdolls into priceless treasures. There is a love that fastens itself onto ragged little creatures for reasons that no one could ever quite figure out and makes them precious and value beyond calculation. This is a love beyond reason, he says. This is the love of God. This is the love with which God loves you and me. You see, that love, the love of God, when welcomed and received by faith, changes everything. It changes your destiny for all eternity. It changes the way you love others. It changes the way you deal with temptation. The love of God changes everything. It's not just a secret. It's the secret. It's the key. This is what, this is the focus of what John, interestingly enough, the beloved disciple, is trying to communicate to us in 1 John 
chapter 3. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, we'll spend the remainder of our time there this morning. And I would like to pray for us as we do that. Let's pray together. God, there are, there are times when you give to me a charge and a trust that feels too, too sacred. Too privileged. This, this is one of those trusts, and I ask your mercy to bear it well in these next few minutes. But how much greater, God, it's not that we should speak of this life, but that we should know it and receive it and be the beloved of God. mercy, God, I pray that not one person, not one person would leave this room without getting that, without saying yes to your love. This, of course, is the great work of your spirit, and we invite that work. In Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this is how 1 John 3 starts. It says, um, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I really like the way the New International Version renders that verse. Look at it. It says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. God, God has lavished his love on us. It's like, it's like chocolate on a Sunday. It's not, it's not dripped on or drizzled on. It is lavished on. It is poured on. Have you ever seen one of those, sometimes they have them at weddings, one of those chocolate fountains? The chocolate is just running out. out of we, had one, we had one in the lobby one time that went berserk. And it started spinning too fast and chocolate was everywhere. Think of one of those fountains. Better yet, Think of the world's largest chocolate fountain, okay? 27 feet tall, lavishing on those who are near it two tons of white, light, and dark chocolate. 120 quarts a minute. It's like, it's like chocolate heaven. An endless pouring of tons of chocolate. That's lavish. Okay? That is lavish. And God has lavished his love on you as a gift lavish gift. So imagine that you, you've turned 16 and of course you've gotten your driver's license and not long after that your dad because he loves you and he's a fantastic dad he gives to you a car. Not just any car. He gives to you Howie. Howie is a 1995 Saturn SC2 with a whole bunch of miles on it, handed down from your big sister. Not just Howie, you get a special designated parking space. (laughs) 
Howie is a classic, a treasure, except for the small dent in the back where your brother backed over it with his 4x4 and didn't know it. But uh, if you are the fourth of five children, to you, Howie is lavish love. You're just glad to have anything, something, anything to drive. So this is, this is a dream come true. But when we, when we think about the lavish love of God, we are not thinking Howie. We are thinking the Bugatti Veyron. We are thinking a $2.3 million automobile that tops out somewhere around 255 mile an hour, okay? a mere 233 if the top's down. When we, we talk about lavish on God's scale, we are not talking Howie, we are talking Bugatti. Lavish. One of the ways we measure lavishness is by cost, isn't it? That's why the, that's why the Bugatti is so lavish, $2.3 million. The love of God is lavished on us, John says. At great cost. Obviously at a cost far greater than Howie's. Far greater than the Bugatti. The life of God's one and only son. Innocent. Yet offered up for your sin and mine. Amidst the greatest of sufferings. Humiliated. Mocked spat upon, beaten, that crown of thorns pressed upon his brow, and then carrying his own cross, then they nailed him to it. They nailed him to it because of the secret, because God loves you. Jesus' death is the great demonstration of the lavish love of God, even for the likes of you, of me. The New Testament puts it this way. This is very familiar, so listen closely. Listen like it's the first time that you've heard it. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love lavished even on the likes of us. And what, what that lavish love accomplished for us, according to John, is that it made us God's children. Look again at that very first verse in chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we, we, should be called the children of God. And, and that is what we are. If you were going to put it into a word, what this lavish love accomplishes, it might well be the word adoption. Adoption. The Bible uses that word in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in love... He predestined us for adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ. You love the adopted ones. God's love drove him to adopt us when we were not very adoptable, to choose us when we were not choosable at all. Lee Strobel tells a story that just illustrates this beautifully. True story. He says that shortly after the Korean War, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier and she got pregnant. And he went back to the United States and she never saw him again. She gave birth to a little girl and this little girl looked different than the other Korean children. And she had light colored curly hair. And in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by the community. In fact, many women would kill their children because they didn't want them to face such rejection. But this woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could, and for seven years she tried to do that until the rejection was too much. And she did something that probably nobody in this room could ever imagine doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. That little girl was ruthlessly treated by people. They called her the ugliest word in the Korean language, tuki, which means alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way people treated her. For two years, she lived in the streets, and finally she made her way to an orphanage. And one day, the word came that a couple from America was going to adopt a little boy. And all the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little boy was going to have hope. And he was going to have a family. So this little girl spent the day cleaning up the little boys, giving them baths, and combing their hair, and wondering which one would be adopted by the American people. And the next day, the couple came. And this is what the girl recalled. It was like Goliath had come back to life, they said. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot of them home with he saw me, she says, out of the corner of his eye. Now let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and he began rattling away something in English and I looked up at him and then he took his huge hand and he laid it on my face. What was he saying? What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. So, when you were scrawny and full of lice, on the inside, in our souls and in our hearts, when we were a worn-out rag doll, that is when God loved us. He adopted us. He chose us in love, the Bible says. And that love, the love that caused that adoption, is the secret. You see, now we belong to him. He is now our father, and we are his children. We are lavishly loved by him, and that love changes everything. Everything changes. And John starts to take that up in the next verses. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, that's Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in Jesus, purifies himself as he, as, as Jesus is pure. See, this lavish love that God loves us with, it changes our future. When Christ returns, when he appears we will see him and we will be changed, John says. So it changes our future and it changes us. It says, we shall be like him. 
we'll be changed by the love God has for us and by meeting face to face the one who loves us so intensely, so lavishly. When we meet face to face, the very one who bore the cross for us. What John has in mind here, I think, is that we will be changed to be like him. We'll be without sin like him. There'll be no more anger, no more worry, no more fear, no more lust, no more selfishness. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll see the one who so lavishly loves us. And John says in verse 3 there, the change has already begun. For those of us who embrace the love God has for us, it begins to change us now. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, as we hope in that encounter with the one who loves us so on that day, the day when Jesus returns for us, we then purify ourselves now in anticipation of that. And this is what John is writing about in the next few verses. And I'm going to change Bible translations one more time. I apologize for that. I'm going to use the HCSB. I'm not even sure what that stands for. The hardcore Southern Baptist version is all that I know. I cannot get that out of my head. Um, they do a good job with these verses. They're, it's helpful. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of law. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, Jesus. And there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, just as Jesus is righteous. These, these verses are difficult and a, a bit confusing when you read them. Several things are important, I think, for us to understand them. First of all, clearly, John is treating those who are reading this letter as Christians. That's not the question. The question is not in his mind whether they are Christians or not. Remember, um, we back up to our very first verse. What's he say? Um, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. It's, that's settled. That's not the question. The question is not are these people Christians or not. The second thing to keep in mind is John does not expect them to be totally, absolutely without sin. If you, if you were to have been reading the whole letter and gone back to the very first chapter, John says in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the expectation of John is that they will sin, but how strongly he is urging them not to. John, primarily here, is warning the church, the believers, against the false teaching of some teachers who had gone out from them. That, that's kind of the setting of this letter, it seems, that there's some who had gone out and were now trying to lure people out of the church into something less than the church. That's what he has in mind in verse 7 when he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. One who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. There were false teachers in their midst. And John is directing these remarks against those false teachers who say, in one way or another, sin doesn't really matter. It's not really a big deal. His primary concern is that they and we would not be led into sin by these false teachers who minimize the impact of sin amongst the various things they were misteaching about. And that's why his statements are so very strong here. He's countering the false teachers. John is warning them to have no tolerance for sin. He's saying it's never okay to sin. Because, because he says, 
to sin is a violation of the love of God for you. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Um, you familiar with the Incredibles? Remember the Incredibles? Okay. And, uh, and their son, uh, Dash. Remember Dash? Dash is, if you haven't seen the movie, Dash is incredibly fast, almost invisibly fast. And you remember a particular scene uh, where he, in class, he would put a tack on his teacher's chair and get back so fast that no one could see him move. He, he disdained his teacher, and so he, he did that. Now, think of your least favorite teacher. I know some of you are going way back. Think of your least favorite teacher. If you were Dash and you were that fast, just for one day, one class period, you were Dash and you could get away with it, would you do it? Would you put the tack on the chair? Be honest. Come on. Okay, let's change it. Let's change it up now. Think of your most favorite teacher. Remember your very favorite teacher. And now you're Dash for one day, one period. Would you do it? No. You wouldn't do that to your very favorite teacher. Why would you not do it to your very favorite teacher? See, this is, this is the restraining power of love. This is what love does for us. We would not wrong someone that we love. And you, you love that teacher. That's your very favorite teacher. And one of the reasons that you love them is because they loved you first. And when we grasp and we welcome and we receive by faith the depth of the love, the lavish love of God for us. Sin for us becomes unthinkable. Not just that we would keep on sinning, but that we would sin at all. How could we do that to one who loves us so? To our very favorite. John is urging them to remember how lavishly God has loved them, and as a result of that, never to sin against God, not to sin against God at all. It is a violation of the lavish love of God on the one hand, and he goes on and he says in verses 8 through 10, he says, the one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. That's why Jesus came. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are, are made eligible. When we sin, he is saying, we are going against the very reason that Jesus came and died. He came to take away sin. And when we sin, we are, we are against the cross. We are against the love of God. How? How could we do that to one who has loved us so? Sin not only puts us at odds with the love of God, he says, but it aligns us with the devil. And John is using really strong language and contrasts here to make it clear When I played uh, football in my freshman year, we started the season 0, 0, and 3. No wins, no losses, three ties. Okay. Um, our coaches were not happy. We're not happy. And I, 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 remember, I still remember a conversation that the coaches had with us. This is back in the day when um, coaches yelled. Coaches yelled loudly. 
They communicated that we could the next game we could win or we could lose, but we could not tie. This is back in the day when coaches not only yelled at you, they pinned you up against the bus and yelled at you. Those were our options. We, we dare not, we must not tie. We, we did not. We finished the season 4-0-3, undefeated with three ties. Um, John is arguing with that level of intensity here. You cannot sin. You must not sin. You dare not sin. It's a violation of what it means to be born of God, to be a beloved child of God. It's a violation of what it means to have been lovingly adopted by God. Every time you sin, every time you sin. Don't fall in with those who say it's okay to sin. Don't fall in with those who say, you know, it's really not a big deal. Those voices tragically are just as common today as they were in John's day, especially amongst our high school and college age uh, young men and women. School officials now talk about an epidemic of cheating amongst students with a new twist. It's driven by sophisticated and hard to catch technological gadgets. Um, there are dozens of videos that you can find online, you shouldn't, with step-by-step -step instructions for cheating on tests. There's a three-minute segment at one of these videos, as I understand it, that shows how to digitally scan the wrapper of a soft drink bottle, then use photo editing software to erase the nutrition information and replace it with test answers or handy formulas. The video had, at the time of this article, nearly seven million hits. According to Common Sense Media, more than 35% of teenagers with cell phones have used the devices to cheat on an exam. One company will overnight you, um, mail you a kit that turns a cell phone into a hands-free personal cheating device. The kit's tiny wireless earbuds allow test takers to phone a friend during a test and get answers remotely without putting down pencils. If you say yes to that, John says, you are actually saying yes to the ways of the devil. And you are saying no to the cross. You are saying no to the love of God for you. To why Jesus came. To destroy the works of the devil. You are saying no to the costly, deep, lavish, undeserved, giving love of God for you. It's estimated that about a third of young people report having been involved in some type of naked sexting, either sending or receiving of those images. Um, about a third of those who have sent those texts report that they've sent, they either actually sent those texts to people that they've never met. They only know online and they're sending these images of themselves. About 20% of the people who get those images pass them on to someone else and about half of those people pass them on to multiple people. majority of those who have sent a naked photo or, or video of themselves have been pressured by someone else to do so at least once. If you say yes to those things and you give in to that pressure, you, you are rejecting the love of God for you. You are violating the love of God for you. And you are falling in with the devil. It's that serious. Now, in this room, most of us have aged out of cheating on tests and sexting. No, nobody would want to see those images. But um, obviously, these are representative of larger areas of integrity compromise and sexual compromise. You can plug in your own relevant illustration. Again, John is not saying, and I'm not saying, that if you've ever cheated, you can't be saved, or if you've ever made a bad choice of one kind or another, it means you cannot be a Christian. You don't have to be perfect. That's not John's point. The 
wants to protect you from falling into the devil's snare that has been set for your very life. Are you saying that, you know, sin is really no big deal? It's a huge deal. It's an act of the rejection of the God who loves you to Jesus who suffered and died for you. It's not a tack on your favorite teacher's chair. It is a nail in the cross of your Savior. That's what sin is. So, the secret is very, very simple. It's just three words. God loves Embracing that love changes everything. It changes your destiny. It changes your character. It changes how you love others. It changes how you deal with temptation. You become the adopted children of God at the greatest This love then purifies us. It causes us to say no to sin and temptation. So is that what you mean when someone asks you, are you a Christian? And you say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you mean when you say yes to that question? that you have come to grips with how lavish God's love is for you. 27-foot-tall chocolate fountain coming to life. $2.3 million Bugatti coming to life. The very Son of God stretching His bloody arms out on a cross to bear your sins kind of love. Have you by faith acknowledged that while you were yet a sinner, wholly undeserving of it, God loved you that lavishly and made you his child? Have you embraced that? Are you abiding in that in such a way that it is changing you? Especially the way that you deal with sin and temptation. That it is becoming increasingly less and less your response to, to, to embrace those temptations because you want to love him back, the one who has so lavishly loved you. Now, some of you have never heard being a Christian described this way. It's always been about being good, and it is. It's about believing the right things, and it is. But you've never heard it being about welcoming the love of God for you. This lavish love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross so you could be adopted into his family. It's very much about this. That's the secret. And some of you have really dumbed this down. Christianity is mostly about what you will and won't do rather than a lavish act of love by God through Jesus for you. You have forsaken your first love. The love of God for you. And you've exchanged it for a system of do's and don'ts and meetings. And so today, you should repent of that foolishness and embrace once again the love of God for you. You should should be in awe that this God loves you. Some of you have never received the love of God for you before, ever. Of course, you can do that today before you leave this room. You can be adopted into God's family by expressing your great need, your great sin, and by believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose on the dead on the the third day, proved that all was true. 
come to grips for the first time with what it means that God loves you. And that's, that's the secret. God, God loves you. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come and lead us in a closing time of response. And uh, I would like to pray for you. And then while the team is singing, if you have a sense today that you, you've gotten somehow the cart before the horse and that you've started doing Christian things, but you've never embraced the love of God for you, and so you want to turn that around today and you want to welcome God's love for you while you're yet a sinner and let that, let that have its great effect on your life, you'd like to walk into that kind of relationship with Christ, if you'll come down here at the front, one of our leaders will be available to pray for you. If you've done that before and you realize that your, your perspective on Christianity has gotten all disordered and you just want to write it today and you want to place the love of God for you right back at the center of it, it's a great thing for you to come with a friend or some of your small group or grab one of our leaders and let us pray for you down here at the front. Just kind of restart that whole thing. You know, kind of reset it around, around the secret. God loves you. So I encourage you to do that. If you'll stand, I'm going to pray for us, and then, then we'll worship the one who loves us so well. God, in mercy, may these feeble words on so great a subject have their full effect. And I pray once again, God, that no one in this room would miss the chance to say yes to you. So, Lord, I just pray right now that if there's anyone here who has never acknowledged their great need for a Savior and has never understood that you love them, and that's why Christ was sent for them, that he might bear their sin and pray that they would say yes to you and believe by the great work of your spirit and that they would be your children adopted into your family Lord have mercy upon us all forgive us for neglecting this secret may we, may we bear it well in our own lives and for those we know and love pray this in the name of Christ who loves us so well.